The sequel, The Sequeling by Dan Aykroyd. In honor of The Conjuring 2, what's the one sequel coming out for the rest of the year that you actually do care about? Neighbors 2 is ineligible. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, a sequel. I didn't really know what's happening until tonight, but uh, I like those books. They're disposable, and sometimes it's okay for movies to be disposable, too. Also, Tom Cruise. Hey, it's me, Dave, with the seven, Finding Dory, because I don't have children, so I'm not worn out in the world of Finding Nemo. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with The Purge, election year, because it's really happening, so I need the movie version to kind of catch up. I'm David Ehrlich. I think because the fact that it's really happening is exactly why we don't need the purge election year, or as it's called in France, the American Nightmare 3 Is it election. really? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. I think it's, a, I think it's wonderful satire, and it creeps right. me the fuck out. I, the, the Purge the first, 2 is really scary. The, the Purge, uh, both the Purge films have excellent concepts and just the most atrocious filmmaking. They're sub-useless. You movies. F off. They're hot fucking garbage. And you're not you're my Purge time, kill this year. Not the last time tonight. Don't take that as a be, threat. It's legal. Not the last time tonight. You will be dangerously wrong. However, I am going to cheat and go with uh, a not a quasi sequel, technically a prequel, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Because watching a movie like Warcraft makes you long for the days of competent franchise fantasy like Harry Potter. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 122 for Wednesday, June 8th, 2016. On this day in 1969, they were having the Emmys in June somehow, and a Get Smart Net Playhouse and Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In were the big winners. So congratulations Whoa. to all of them. I know at some point they moved the Emmys to September, and I guess it's never been the same since. Uh, Does anybody have any idea what Net Playhouse is? No, but I imagine it's like the Texaco Playhouse or something, like the, uh, you know, those fancy That's going to be the wiki hole for me this week, is what was Net Playhouse and why was it so good? Please report back. Uh, Before we get started this week, how are we on reviews? David, what are the people saying? Have we read this? I don't think we've read this review from Ain't No Fuckboy. (laughs) Oh, I, I almost, now that I say that out loud, I'm almost certain that we haven't. Uh, this is a very good one. Uh, we only have one review this week, so please send it more. Uh, but it is a good one. So thank you very much to Ain't No Fuckboy, spelled so that it looks like the name of an Italian pasta uh, rather than slang. Uh, Jibber jabber of the highest order, they say. You think you've experienced everything that life has to offer, and then you hear David Ehrlich speak the phrase, shed their uterine lining, and you have to reevaluate. I've been listening for a while now, and I have some questions. Katie, congratulations on the baby. Thanks. If you had had to pick one of your co-hosts to babysit your pending pride and joy, (laughs) whom would you select? Uh, Patches. He has two live cats. I have Aww, two live nieces, you. by the way. That's true. Whatever. Apparently counts for nothing, even though Uncle of the Year three times running. Patches, in which Olympic sport, summer or winter, do you think you'd have the best chance to win a bronze medal? God, I hate the Olympics. Is that what? known? Do we talk about that on the podcast? Oh I don't God. like That's not an answer. I would uh, probably bobsled, or wait, no, what the luge, where you just jump on a sled and go down. That, that seems that's a easy. good. That's a good. That's like a metaphor for you talking about Warcraft. Yup. <laughs> David, that's me. 
Do you consider yourself a wine kind of guy or a soda pop kind of guy? True story, I have not had a soda of any kind other than, like, tonic uh, water since I was a sophomore in high school, had a flat Coke, realized that I had, like, five of those fucking things every day, and they were disgusting. Cut them out on the spot. Easiest thing in the world you can cut out of your diet. I lost, like, 10 pounds. Never been better. Fantastic. Don't drink soda. It's killing you. So you're saying you're a wine kind of guy. I'm a wine kind of guy. (laughs) Dave Seven, you were in a room and there was a gun on the table. The only other person in the room is an adversary in commerce. Only one of you can prevail. Do you pick up the gun, Dave Seven? He says he'll take his answers off the air, but why... Too late. Yeah, why why deny the rest of our listeners the pleasure? Uh, Yes. Humans are animals and I will win. Okay. Dave, Dave, did you see Joy? I did, I did not see Joy. That is, is a, a joy line scenario? from Joy. Got it. But, that is a line you know. from Joy? Yeah, Isabella Rossellini asks her all of this. You don't remember this? No. The movie was nonsense. Did we just all take the replicant test from Blade Runner very cleverly and not notice? Probably. Are we replicants? I know Probably. I am. Well, leave a review and tell us if you think we're replicants, and uh, then we'll be able to find out for sure. In addition to Warcraft this week, another uh, movie that is a hot bunch of nonsense is opening. Uh, and this one I like a lot. And Patches didn't see it, so there won't be any chances wait, to yell at wait, me about wait, wait, it. Wait, 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 wait. Please tell me you're not talking about Now You See Me Too. Oh, I am talking about the movie Jesus that should have been called Christ. Now You Don't. Oh, my God. If it had been called Now You Don't, it would have been way better. I but, almost know. regret giving Warcraft an F so that I can't give this movie a lower score. Wow. Wait, how did you feel about the first Now You See Me, David? I fucking hated it. I yeah. fucking <laughs> It makes me mad, like actually seething oh, wait. with anger. Stop, because I think that's the obvious answer. Like, I don't understand the Now You See Me fandom, the allure of this franchise, which when described to me plot-wise and the big twist at the end of the first movie just sounds like a disaster in slow motion. Yet there is this cult surrounding these movies and pure excitement for now you see me too katie I would you fall into this cults. explain it's not a cult it are people who are like ah, doofy like i'm there for it it's not like people who are passionate fans so i'm sorry not what, even what are they like in this movie <laughs> what do they tell like you what the fuck happened in it anyway. no i definitely had forgotten what had happened in the first movie katie, but please please go on yeah can you I wanna... you know, katie when you explain this can you talk in david's now you see me uh, fan voice. I yeah. think it's something like Goofy. I'm Katie. I like Now You See Me too. <laughs> I do. I want to. So the the thing about me is a movie that involves twists will usually be able to get one over on me. Like I don't predict plots that well. Like I don't usually see the bad guy coming. So if you're gonna try to like pull one over on me, like I'll usually go with it. And Now You See Me isn't a movie entirely structured on being like, oh, well you thought you were seeing this, but actually you were seeing this. And the twists are satisfying enough and also silly enough and kind of knowingly silly enough that the first movie totally worked on me. Co- important caveat, I saw it on a plane, which I think is the ideal way to see probably both Now You See Me and Now You See Me Too. But it comes back for the sequel. It's doing like basically the same stuff. It's got Lizzie Kaplan, who I think is an improvement on Isla Fisher. It's got Daniel Radcliffe, who I think is doing really well as this kind of like snotty rich guy. He's basically Jesse Eisenberg in Batman vs. Superman, but allowed to have fun. 
And then the movie just kind of like goes off on a clip and runs all around and takes place in Macau. And there's some dumb detours. I mean, there's a whole thing where Woody Harrelson's playing his own twin that is way less fun than that sounds. But the movie is fun and it moves and it has energy to it. And like one or two good fight scenes. And then Mark Ruffalo talking about magic. David, what's not to like about Wait, this? Wait, fight scenes? What are the fight scenes in a no, movie about I mean, magicians? They're, they're what do they do? They're not really fight scenes. Do they throw well, like, they're, they're Mark playing Ruffalo's cards? in a fight scene. Uh, no. <laughs> there's there's one like ex- escape scene uh that has a moment but i mean uh john chu could do or once upon a time i trusted could do this shit in his sleep uh and can't really sell even a, an interesting shot of combat in this movie but that's not my problem with these movies my problem with these movies is is it's like the contrived bullshit that pains you from every other movie like how sometimes you're watching a movie you like and there's like one plot twist that you're just like uh they really fudged that detail this is a movie entirely made up of them it's a movie about how like it's it uses i have like a whole rant about this ready to go that i really need to put into writing first but essentially Anything can happen in this movie. There are no rules whatsoever. Magic, in none of the things that they can do that is, are ostensibly all explained in hyper-elaborate, usually tech-heavy explanations, are even remotely possible. They all fall into the realm of magic. And But the movie can just sort of make it up as it goes along, come up with some cockamamie explanation for all of them. It's all about... Like the the, the the beauty of magic versus when, science. When you say the explanations, do you mean here's the Ocean's Eleven, how we did it montage? But yes, for there's, a, there's, a, yes. there's a good number of those. That's it, it is It is the most half-assed screen. I mean, it, it takes pleasure in the things that infuriate you about any other movie. And it's does it use does it use little moments of magic? Does no, is there like sleight no. of hand to get through a door, or is there like no, yes, oh, there's no, a coin no, behind no, your no. ear? There, there's definitely some warped, little it, and it's all done in CG. It's all CG. Oh yeah, it's definitely all moments. CG. And this is a movie that's sort of about the possibility of magic, at least ostensibly, but not even the simplest magic in this movie falls under the realm of what is possible in the real world. Why is Neil and Patrick it, and the Harris first line not in the movie? movie. Is like seeing is believing, but the entire premise of these two. Fucking awful movies, which have no entertainment value to them whatsoever, <laughs> other than maybe watching Daniel Radcliffe pal around with Michael Caine in like a half-ass relationship. Uh, oh, whatever. Um, <laughs> that that uh, is is uh, seeing is believe. You can't believe anything that you're seeing here. I mean, it took me back to like Fitzcarraldo, though. How far we've come from actually trusting what you're seeing on a movie screen to now it's just all horseshit and we're making movies that revel in it they don't even try i find these movies deeply offensive i fucking fucking hate these movies so deeply much deeply offensive that seems oh that might be no overrated. i know I, I was livid i was like livid like jeffrey wells around a fat person livid like could not wow. even contain myself <laughs> i hate 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 these movies hate 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 but I do Katie, like you liked it, though. You liked sure it. Please stand did. up and and pull <laughs> a rabbit is, out of your hat. Your poor child growing inside of you. Think of them, please. <laughs> I know. This movie is ridiculous. The greatest magic trick of them all. Birth. And there's a smugness to it that I find really charming. I mean, you've got... So Mark Ruffalo's in kind of a different role than he was in the first movie. He's kind of part of the game. All of them are smug assholes, like really proud of themselves. Jesse Eisenberg is really good at playing a smug asshole and actually gets to do What is it his character here? How am I supposed to tell him apart from Dave Franco? Oh, is no. The, you know, the one that, I mean, white kid and then the other white kid who, like, yeah. for some reason... Dave is Franco handsome, is the one who's really stage? good at cards. 
and uh, yeah, card tricks. And yeah, he was throwing cards on Fallon the other night, so he seems like he can actually do things with playing cards. Not yeah, like but, not but, like any of the ones you see in the movie. No, the, no, the the stuff that they're showing you in the movie is like magic tricks beyond anything that could happen in real life, which makes it kind of fun. They're doing these absurd things, but there's enough of the reality of what magic is that you're kind can of you, going along with. Can it. you? I, I guess I'm asking you to spoil part of this, but like, sure. what, describe one of the magic tricks in the movie. I, I just well, want to know what you're talking about here. So there's basically a, a whole scene where they have been... So the whole reason of the plot is that Daniel Radcliffe is this rich kid who has decided that he needs to steal a computer chip out of a big computer thing in Macau. And he has <laughs> brought them to Macau to be able to do this. The only people who can steal this chip for him are magicians. Oh. When you said of thing course. in Macau, I thought you I thought you were making like a like thingamajig. But no, no thingamajig. they're in Macau. This okay. is one of those movies that, like, they don't even try to disguise the fact that they're just making them for Chinese box offices now. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just sad. You know that none of the characters, like, there's a lot of the magic that is purportedly in the movie can't exist because it wouldn't pass the Chinese censors. Uh, I mean, this is the Wait, whole movie. Wait, what? Hang on. What, what part of magic wouldn't pass Chinese censors? Well, magic censors? flies. Ghosts do not. Um, but a lot of anything remotely supernatural has to be policed. Oh, there's a lot of supernatural stuff in Chinese movies, but it has to follow, follow a certain protocol. It's just when you make a movie that is only only reason it exists, much like Pacific Rim Two will, is to appease the Chinese box office. It has to play by certain. Don't rules. offend John Boyega. We want to have him on the show one day. Wait, Katie. So I cut you off. What? So they go to Macau. So and they have to the go. They have thing. to go steal this cu- this cu- chip. The thing of Macau. And basically, it's uh, it's so they go- have to go through a big metal detector. They got to find some way to get the chip out of this room where the computer is located without the metal detector going off. It involves them throwing a card from person to person, like using Dave Franco's card tricks to like throw it through their sleeves and down their pants and hide it behind their hands and sleight of hand. And there's like a lot of CGI and then a couple of real magic tricks in it. Like just like, you know, basically the sleight of hand part of it. And it's really entertaining. It's like it's watching, not. you know, Tom Cruise hover over some lasers in mission impossible, except what? doing it with a card. I, I guess no. maybe as a, as a way of wrapping this up, what happened to magic? Magic was so popular, especially in the late '90s and early 2000s. There was a curiosity you mean the in gathering, magic. or <laughs> no? That that's a whole other segment, and I would be happy to discuss Magic the Gathering sometime. But I'm I'm just talking about like the David Copperfield branded magic here, and that he Copperfield's a producer on these movies, so he obviously has an investment in the future, uh, and and sees now you see me as a way of propagating magic, or at least provoking more interest in it this kind of vegas big style but that's what i mean that's what i don't understand like why is this movie cg magic or or why why don't people care more that it's not authentic magic maybe people aren't interested in anything it's like oh patches could have three heads and then oh no we just made up the three heads machine like it's like uh and it's it's infuriating how lazy the screenwriting is and I think we were talking about it, but like the how magic has sort of receded and it's been replaced maybe with these large scale fantasy worlds is that th- there's a sense that you we can create anything on a movie screen and therefore it gives us license to do so. And here you have a movie where they can visualize any stupid thing you can imagine, and so they do it. And you really, miss, I mean, it's the furthest thing possible from Ocean's Eleven, where everything is intricate, like a, like a Swiss clock. I mean, and they really have to think these things through. And there's actually, Ocean's Eleven sounds like it has more practical effects because it has a guy who can do acrobatics yes. and then curl oh, up in I a know. box. O- it's more Ocean's of a circus Eleven act. Is- Ocean's Eleven is all practical, even for how impractical a lot of the plot is. Uh, there, there's a real 
satisfaction in watching them pull this off and explain how you, how you did it. You're sort of halfway there, and then they fill the missing pieces, and it's it's really satisfying in a way. That this movie is just like you, it's not possible to appreciate or anticipate what it is that they're going to do because they're just making it up as they go along, and then having some you know asinine explanation for it, which is so far no, beyond the bounds more, of what's possible. There's more no, there that you're allowed to anticipate no. than you're giving it credit for. No, they no even the big final <laughs> trick at the end. They just tell you. What they're doing, they say we're gonna like pay attention to all three of these things because they're all gonna come in handy for the big explanation at the end. They do. They, they do not. It they is all do. fucking. It's like, <laughs> hey, remember when we did this thing with cards? Uh, it also it was like trap doors. Like we made them pretend like we're taking off in an airplane. I, I was like, oh my, you you uh, you was uh, uh. wow. <laughs> this I magic trick this is we're going to make David's I, brain melt. I'm, I'm going to. I've said. I've busted out a sentiment like this a handful of times in the history of a broadcast. I really think, uh, but I, I try to use it sparingly. And even for Warcraft, which is a movie that I loathe, uh, I would refrain from going quite this far. I think that championing this movie almost, almost, with Katie being the exception because we love her so much, makes you well, an enemy of cinema. Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't even seen it and I disagree with I you because so there are so myself. few movies that fit the bill. Uh, this is one of them. Go see Now You See Me too. Boom. <laughs> um, I can't believe that this is an episode of which we're getting yelled at because I played Warcraft for this fucking podcast. Yeah. And I want to be appreciated. I did I'm not happy ask for you. I, the person yelling at you, did not ask you to do that for the record. That's true. But Dave, Dave and Patches were really into Hey, Katie's and glad was, we asked because she enjoyed playing it. I kind of liked it. Wait. It was like, it's th- like Oregon we, Trail. Is this the segment? <laughs> Wait, we, yeah, no, this, this is, is beginning segment. to be the segment. So you should actually Yeah, no, it's it a up. segment. I put, yeah. I started the segment. The segment has started. Yeah, Warcraft's awesome. You like real time strategy games? Okay, I didn't get very far. So I don't know that I got the full Warcraft experience, but it was like basically, you know, like building my little homestead and then some orcs showed up and then I had to have some people mining for gold and then, you know, they got killed and then I had to have some other people get built to fight them. And <laughs> to be yeah. to be clear, Katie played the 1994 edition of Warcraft, I did. the original orcs and humans version. This is not Warcraft 2. This is not Warcraft 3 fancy that kind of looks more like the movie. This is old school classic Warcraft. And it's well, we like uh, to... Command of Conquer or, or yes, uh, Starcraft. And that, like, it's more like Dune 2 if you go back that far. Like well, 94 uh, RTS was new new stuff. But I just yeah. feel like you're building a little farm and you, surrounding everything that you can see is just black space where the enemy could be. Yep, yeah. exactly. Okay. And so this was uh, one of like the premier real-time strategy games. Uh, 2 was probably more popular and established a lot more of the lore but the movie tells the story of the first war, so I thought, why not put Katie in that? Did you did you click one of your units as many times as you could until he yelled at you? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like, what? Yeah. That, that I didn't do it as many times as I could. I kind of did it by accident. I didn't mean to get yelled at, but you know, that's fine. No, you no, start no, to th- yell at me. That's good. And then like later in two, when you like click the sheep, they explode. But it's really interesting to me that like that was. Something that I remember doing over like a dial-up connection with Warcraft Two because you could play against other people over over the phone. Um, we didn't oh, call so it the you, internet you, then. You did it over, so you were kind of doing it on the internet. 
Yeah, but you would dial directly into the other person's copy of Warcraft 2. So it was like a one-way connection. It wasn't the full, you know, battle.net that they have set up now. But it's really interesting now that, like, you have all these uh, free-to-play games or, you know, time-burning games that where you're just tapping things that have become all addictive on, like, these tiny devices when really, like, the core gameplay mechanics are being developed around, like, Warcraft 2. Like, how many farms do you need to have, like, knights is something that I still probably have at the back of my mind if I heard, like, the soundtrack to Warcraft start playing. Yeah, I mean, it felt like... I don't know. I, I, when I said Oregon Trail, like, it felt like something I could have played on MS-DOS in my, like, third-grade computer lab, <laughs> um, which, I, you know, was kind of charming about it. What, what I did not learn from this at all is how this can become a movie... <laughs> And how it has any story that anybody... Well, don't open that can of worms, because we'll we'll get there eventually. I played Warcraft 2 quite a bit uh, back in the day. Warcraft and Warcraft 2. And I was shocked to learn when I sat down for the movie that there was any sort of lore or mythology around the series. I I felt the same way. Especially in the original Warcraft, like... At least in Warcraft 3, there's all these big cutscenes, and you can start visualizing the characters, and there's kind of a thread in the campaign. But in the original one, it's like, okay, just build six farms. And then in Quest 2, it's like, just kill the three orcs. Um, And there are scrolling texts to kind of explain it. And I probably, the truth is, the story is there, but who has the patience? Everyone just wants to play the game. And what's so interesting is that all all the battles, and especially when you start playing people online or in like direct connections or land on Warcraft 2 or something. I mean, you're just playing the same game over and over and over again. And Dave, I, I would want to ask you, because I thought about this during the movie, uh, why why is playing real-time strategy over and over and over again so fun? I guess David, too, since you are a seasoned veteran, as we all are. But <laughs> I wonder... I wonder why uh, why this entertainment is so digestible, or is it the randomness diff- of like the person you're playing? Is there so much personality playing someone who's built? I, like, how are they going to build? I, I never played when I played it. It was never online. It was always against a computer. But I, I did that too, and it was still fun. Like, I guess the computers have different strategies. I'm not sure how they build those games out, especially in 1994. How random can it be there's um, there must be patterns there must and uh, i, I don't know i spent wizard. the last like two weeks playing this game of, like about hungry sharks or something on my iphone and i've completely dominated this game i've gotten the megalodon who is even above the great white shark i eat every motherfucker in the ocean uh it is totally brainless it's the same every time and yet on the subway i still find myself pulling out and playing it so there um i don't know if Warcraft being the same game every time would necessarily dissuade me from. So turn your brain it. off. Entertainment is more valid in the gaming world. Do you think? <laughs> no, not no, more, no, not more valid. But it. Uh, oh no. Oh, than in movies. Than in movies compared to movies, because we often, you know, chastise people for the turn your <laughs> uh, brain off attitude. It can. I, I suppose. I suppose it can be. There's a larger conversation to have there, but I suppose it can be. I think That's what critics like Roger Ebert think all of games are. So maybe it's well, true. I think They're Roger not Ebert was like. As astronomically wrong, but uh, <laughs> May he rest that's, in not peace. What that's not yeah whatever. I mean, dead people could be wrong too, but that's not what we're talking about now. Dave was about. To I'm that. sorry, Dave. I'm looking forward to your guys' uh, dis- review on Friday because uh, just like bringing all this back in my mind, I'm like, oh man, but like we don't know Gul'dan's motivation until Warcraft Three. 
So how much are we going to find out with the... And I know that I only have a few days before you guys just, like, crush my hopes for this. Well, let's not, let's not go too crazy. You don't know what we think about this. But I, I will say that the major disappointment of the movie is, at least compared to the 1994 game, not a lot of time spent uh, harvesting... Uh, wood, <laughs> mm. lumber, or or mining gold. No, I did the not. Main, the I, I, I also, I also the played I a few rounds. Game is the importance of gold mines. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, none of that. I, I played a few rounds because I knew Katie somewhere in the world was doing the same. And um, man, the first few levels of the 1994 game are just like 15 minutes of going to find gold mines and yeah. really, really tedious, boring stuff. God, ba- Balatars. Warcraft would have been <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> we go to the, the forest, we come oh back my from God. the forest. We go to the forest, come back. <laughs> That's more like the game that I played. But, you know, I liked it, so maybe I should see Bellatar's uh, Warcraft. Make that the sequel, Hollywood. Yes, Bellatar's Tides of Darkness. <laughs> So this is kind of a weird topic that may seem tangential to entertainment, but I swear I'm, I will get on topic ASAP. Um, a few weeks ago, actually on May 28th, and you heard about this in the news, a boy slipped into an enclosure at a zoo, at the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, and had a 10-minute encounter with a 450-pound gorilla named Harambe. I'm laughing because I guess the setup is just like... It's so disastrous. This is the worst thing that could happen at a zoo. A boy falls well, the, in. And the word encounter is an interesting choice. Yes, I'm reading, a, I'm, I'm quoting a CNN story when I say that he had a 10-minute encounter. He hung out. No, um, he was pulled uh, across a moat. Or no, uh, yeah, no, Harambe, the gorilla, pulled the boy across the moat. This was a huge, I mean, what do you do? What do you do? Well, they had to shoot Harambe, um, and that was... I mean, there were so many different conversations being spun out of this incident. Uh, you know, how dare they shoot the gorilla? Like, if you're naturalist, why, why would you do this? Or like, scorning the mother. There were so many people going after this uh, woman who, was she taking care of the kid? You know, were they, they were debating pressing charges. As of today, they are not pressing charges against this woman. Guess, guess what race she happened to be. Right. Then there's whole conversations about that, about this kind of underlying racism against this woman. If it was a white person, would this have happened? Oh, my God. There's so many conversations. I mean, obviously... The boy lived, and that is a positive thing. Uh, there are just so many questions that come out of this. One kind of lower on the list that I, you know, that I think always comes up when something about zoos <clears throat> enters a conversation. And I thought I saw Dave comment about this on Facebook, which inspired me. But I need to get Dave's exact thoughts on zoos because it turns out Dave loves zoos when, I, in fact, I thought he didn't like zoos, which is a common thing that you hear people start talking about. Do we need zoos? Like, w- this wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a zoo. Um, and after mo- a movie like Blackfish, you know, wa- yeah, that was a and huge finding, campaign to end Finding Dory, which comes out soon, is very... Uh, Anti-zoo? No. Or anti... No, it's, it's just, it's, it's largely set within a uh, maritime enclosure oh, okay. of some kind. Oh, That's interesting. Um, we'll see what the side they take there. But yeah, I feel like whenever an incident happens at a zoo, you wonder, well, this gorilla may not have gone crazy if he was out in his normal life. And 
Uh, it made me think, and back when I had another podcast called The Sophisticates, I don't know if that's still on iTunes, but I discussed with those guys about, do we need to keep zoos? Do zoos really matter? Should we let these animals go free? What purpose do they serve? You know, it's a huge moral question. If you're an animal lover, you don't necessarily want to see animals trapped in these pens, in these conditions. Obviously, there are great zoos that give them the space that they need, um... But then there are really bad zoos, and if people aren't caring for these animals, if they're not, uh, and they're not putting a divide between humans, uh, and, you know, who knows what could happen? There's all sorts of moral issues with zoos. My question to you guys would be, one, I'm curious what, where you stand on the zoo argument, if they're important, if they're, you know, if they're, if they're entertainment, since we're, that's what we talk about on this podcast, if they're valid, uh, or if they kind of cross a line with your, your thoughts about animals. But two, and, I, and I, I'm curious if nature documentaries would replace zoos in your mind. You know, is there an, if the argument against zoos, in my mind, the argument is, well, we keep them around so that kids, and I guess their families too, adults, can, can see animals up close, can create the empathy that we have for those animals. It's kind of a paradox, right? I probably love animals more because I went to zoos growing up. Uh, and so? have that strong empathy. I do. I mean, I, I have strong memories of going to the Philadelphia Zoo, seeing you know animals, specimens. I suppose is a, is a kind of cold way of putting it, but creatures. animals, creatures from around the world in different situations, and watching them live and carry about their day. I love polar bears to this day because the polar bear tank at uh, the Philadelphia Zoo was an incredible experience for me personally um but then obviously the argument against it is well those polar bears should probably run free instead of being in a very small tank in the middle of philadelphia but so if we didn't have zoos could the same empathy be created through film uh would do do those replace the memories that we forge in zoos so i'm putting it on the table respond away i firmly believe that film should replace the memories that we form in zoos and that with that the zoos should probably go the way that the circus has gone and have some performing animals like horses and dogs and, you know, animals who don't necessarily have an expectation of a wild life. And uh, otherwise, there should, zoo. Be, there, should be pre- there should be preservation efforts for a lot of these animals. And in some cases, this is the best way to preserve them. And I, but I think that's more of an outdated model. And I, I don't think that... Have you seen a documentary? in zoos. Have you seen a, a nature documentary uh, that has created that connection, that cl- you know, has Planet gotten Earth. close enough. Planet Earth was incredible. There's yeah. a recent film by uh, D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hegedus about uh, Hegedus, 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 about, uh, called uh, Unlocking the Cage, which is about uh, chimpanzees or apes, apes that we maybe in captivity and trying to free them and trying to give them the same rights as humans to try to um, legally emancipate them and... Uh, uh, it's very interesting for this topic. I mean, it's playing at Film Forum right now, and it'll be on Netflix before long, I'm sure. Uh, I'm the only one who here has seen it, presumably, so because very, very, what very did you say few it was people called? saw it. Uh, it's called Unlocking the Cage. Okay. So really, I bring it up only so you can file it away for future reference. Uh, but I, for one, I'm sure I went and enjoyed the zoo when I was a child, but and maybe that experience helped shape my world a little bit. Um but I do not retain any of those memories, and I certainly find the concept of zoos to be unpleasant. But do you think is it's there... subconscious on some level? They're not necessarily memories. I mean, go every time you go to the zoo is not going to be a profound memory, but it's no. the exposure that you would probably 
file away. Yeah, like, you know, the world is bigger than you. Look at all these animals um, that, that exist. Uh, now, as an adult, you go and you're like, look at all these animals that we dominated and captured and, uh, and sort of make work for us. For whatever reason, I find aquariums a lot less upsetting because uh, those fish that we typically keep in in uh, you know like little individual aquariums or plastic bags or whatever the case might be seem perfectly happy regardless. But yeah, I mean, sure. I think I think that dolphins maybe uh, are yeah. an exception to that. But yeah, yes. aquariums for the most part. No, and larger and mammals. You know, larger mammals, of course. Yeah, we but, also uh, have blackfish. Yeah, but uh, but I'm only human. That, that may not be a politically correct explanation, but it's my like sort of primitive lizard brain uh, response when I'm comparing the two. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that I will have the means to bring my hypothetical children to places where they could see these animals firsthand. Uh, but I do think that something like planet earth, um, and the forthcoming planet earth too, I believe, what? Uh, everything that? gets a sequel these days, yeah. uh, <laughs> would be a lot more effective. I mean, not only, I, I, I wonder what the difference is between seeing, an animal firsthand, seeing it on Blu-ray. And now, today, I actually have my first virtual reality experience. I know I'm a few years behind the curve. Uh, but I think that virtual reality zoos really could bridge the gap. Um, although they would be, they would still have to be barriers because putting a kid in a virtual reality enclosure with a gorilla would still be utterly fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah, put, put, the put, the, put the wall well, there. Luckily, I don't think the virtual reality gorilla comes out and attacks you if you get too close, so... Yeah, I don't know. But that's, uh, but that's, I, that's the beauty they, of they VR. They put that thing on my head, and instantly I was like, oh my god, everything is real. No, <laughs> so. I, think, I think you're absolutely onto something, because virtual reality, we talked about this on the podcast before, that it's it's a true empathy machine. You're, you're closer to something than you could ever be, you know, four rows back in a, in a movie theater. Uh, maybe that maybe that will be the key to actually getting rid of zoos. But, but Dave, you yeah. love zoos. I do love zoos. Explain uh, yourself. I mean, I'm pessimistic about the the way that the humans interact with the Earth, uh, in the sense that I believe a lot of what Katie said about you know certain animals adapting better to zoos, and maybe it is like you know a circus where you have a certain quality of performing animals where it's like not cruelty. Um, but I do think that there's a there's a difference species by species between uh, things that are like have uh, habitats that are willing to take them and protect them in a way as good as a zoo because in a lot of ways a zoo is about protecting the animals in there from us as it is you know like a counterpoint to the the gorilla uh, child story there was like a wandering buffalo in Yellowstone that was picked up by some tourists Oh yeah, uh, and it had to be euthanized, not because the tourists touched it or anything, but just they didn't understand that like one in every so many you know cubs gets orphaned and nothing's going to take them and they're going to die by exposure to the elements. And Yellowstone makes a policy of not interfering unless a human actually does something first. So by like trying to help this animal, they effectively euthanized it. That's something like what happened with the gorilla in the sense that the gorilla doesn't know what's going on. But the confluence of events puts in a position where the best thing to do for all parties to make sure that there's as little loss of life as possible is to put the gorilla down. Um, those are like horrible situations that I don't think arise a ton. Like the gorillas are a different interesting case because gorillas do really good in certain types of uh, habitats built for them. They just don't really good 
do-good and habitats built for us to be able to see them all the time, which is what a zoo typically has to do. So zoos kind of come and go, but I think in the full scope of things, I know if the Denver Zoo didn't have their elephants they just built a new enclosure for in the past few years, that those elephants, like, their chances of being poached goes up exponentially. Yeah. Like, the habitat that they need to live in isn't a safe habitat if in, case, in some species cases. So if there's a place, like, uh, I used to have a friend who would work in Germany at a place for primates that had been infected with human diseases and they couldn't be released. So they built them this really beautiful habitat and they had a bunch of uh, simian specialists on hand to make sure they were taken care of. If you have a place like that, great. If there isn't a place like that, I think zoos are better than trying to introduce something back into a habitat that we've changed so much that it's no longer a habitat that can support it. And then definitely and lastly, in terms of uh, like being able to replace it with like film or whatnot, I would love for that to be a capable technology. But like in order to develop that technology, you're going to have to have people spending time with the real animals so like Bambi looks great because all the animators are watching real animals that they brought into like the Disney studio so a certain extent I feel like that goes like across a lot of different creativities and if you're going to have like a wide variety of how life on this planet works uh, you should be exposed to it as often as possible and I, I will say I hope this is not breaking embargo in any way just strictly talking about the short that plays before Finding Dory which is a photorealistic in a way unlike anything I'd seen previously from Pixar or maybe from anyone about uh, a bird and a baby bird um, and that's really all you need to know but the idea the reason I bring it up is because the uh, the visual quality is such and this is of course really only a matter of time but watching this short even though it's so anthropomorphized because they're all exhibiting human behavior just I don't know I, I think it only adds this argument that it's another step towards not needing sort of animals but, in captivity. Well, to I guess to, to counter that on some level, do you think that the inherent editorializing or, or story crafting that goes on in both movie or, you know, narrative films like the short you're describing or documentaries uh, creates that barrier that you can never that, that close to an animal the way that you would see it? in person, just living a kind of mundane existence, feeling it mundane, breathe, sensing yeah, it breathing. I, I'm thinking I about think like, like, I'm thinking about the Disney nature documentaries and a, and a film like chimpanzee. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, if Tim Allen is going to keep talking mm-hmm. over the fucking chimps, I'm going to be pissed, you know, like uh, that, that is not But what getting about close. like webcams, like a webcam of a hawk? Uh, that mm-hmm. is, is, you know, much less mediated than Tim Allen narrating it and it goes on for days at a time but isn't one of the most popular webcams the like panda webcams in china and like maybe but those are i mean i just i just think that there are ways you know without getting into arguments about depiction and how there's no such thing as an objective lens i mean i still think there are ways to not tim allenify uh something (laughs) and and not have tim allen away from your nature yeah i get yeah take him from the documentary and put tim allenify more movies just he needs to be in everything sorry uh-huh. Uh, I think there are ways to do it. There will always be benefit of seeing the animals live in their natural habitats, um, maybe. But the natural habitats for a lot of these animals are not zoo enclosures. So 
And yeah. that's the argument for something like Planet Earth, which we have, and is this incredible document that, like, I plan to show my children. Like, it's an amazing thing to be able to it see. It is beautiful. Planet Earth is a beautiful film that captures mo- moments of grandeur and small, you know, bursts of beauty. But it doesn't feel necessarily like I'm witnessing life. Is there a distinction really? there that you can I, I don't. I do not share that sentiment. Yeah, I, I disagree. I mean, I think there's like, you know, there's narratives within planet Earth where you're watching like mountain goats trying to find food and then you watch one of them die because that's part of what nature is. And what is. about like, the penguin who wanders off to his death? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, God. that's also that, – that could be in the Werner Herzog film. I know it's in the Werner Herzog film. I think there's some equivalent of it in planet Earth. Maybe it's an no, elephant. No, I think it's an elephant. Yeah, yeah an elephant. Yeah. Uh, but either way – um, they are. I don't uh, know. By creating yeah, tragedy, by making them characters, it feels more like fiction, more of a disconnect, something that we watch, not something but that there, we experience. Uh, I think you're making uh, a very fair point uh, in in general about how we shape narratives. But at the same time, there's a big difference between making a character and saying, like, objectively, here is an elephant, a part of this herd we've been following. It has gotten lost. It is walking to its death. We're not interfering. We're just sort of letting you know what the context is here. I think there's a difference between providing context and, and shaping narrative. Yeah, I think you're mistaking March of the Penguins for Planet Earth. Like, there's a lot of really different ways to do this. Wait, Dave, you were about to jump in. Yeah, I mean, but then I got, uh, like, a little complex. It's about, like, applying narratives to things and, like, like arcs to things that don't deserve it that definitely is where like documentary like exists i'm a big fan of not anthropomorphizing animals they're you know different crazy cultures and different crazy beings so it's like it's almost like the march of the penguins thing does feel disingenuous uh but i think that they're i get what you're saying about it not being real because there's something about occupying the same physical space with something that we can't really replicate i can understand a creature better but understanding like it it's existential nature or whatever comes with like you know being able to point at it i feel like but on the other hand i don't want people like you know looking at something and thinking it's cold and then touching it because that's like the opposite of what it is like it so i guess another pro zoo thing versus something like Yellowstone or Habitats is that, you know, you have a little plaque that's fucking contextualizing things for you and then a barrier that keeps that over there and this over here. That's just narratives, narrative technicalities of zoos. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we'll ever run out of, well, this isn't dependent on people wanting to make them. I was going to say we're not, never going to run out of nature documentaries. Um, but I guess if we run out of nature to document, uh, that could that could be a problem. Womp, womp. Yeah. Well, Jeez. this kind of leads into my, my point, which is, yeah, you, there are probably a bunch of science and nature documentaries on Netflix, a lot of National Geographic and PBS documentaries. But I'm wondering if the ones that end up standing out, you know, your blackfish, your grizzly man, are about um, the fear of animals or the disconnect that we should put them far away from us, or that we should, you know, they're in a bad situation, we should free them. These kind of negative skewing, even though they're positive message documentaries, negative uh, emotions, if that somehow is is troublesome, if those are the only films that you get, 
will people actually create empathy for animals? I don't know. Planet Earth exists. Like I know. I mean, maybe Planet Earth is just a pillar. Like That solved all of our problems after Planet Earth. We don't need zoos anymore. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I kind of feel that way. And I feel like Blackfish has done a huge service to the understanding of the way, the way we think about animals. And, like, you know, I think that, you know, that's part of how, like, they decided to stop using elephants in the circus. Like, that's an important part of progress. That's, you know, how civil rights... I mean, like, civil rights sounds overblown, but, like, honestly, I think that's, like, part of what the era that we're in in regarding animals. And it'll be really interesting how it affects the way that we think of zoos. Well, I would turn this question to everybody listening. Uh, I guess the, the, the one point, Katie, is that you can't fall in a documentary. Uh, that would be... Like like into a gorilla enclosure? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, no, don't, I, don't I think that would be either. fun if you could, though. And no just documentary like I wasn't paying attention to the documentary, and the director <laughs> came out and just started bludgeoning me around my head. <laughs> you need that fear. You need that fear. Uh, well... All all of our listeners, let me know what your favorite uh, nature animal documentaries are. We'll retweet them or something, and and we can start the abolishment of zoos. Apparently, no one likes them. Dave likes them. What? No. Yeah. Dave likes them. (laughs) Somebody come to the zoo with me. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Thank you for listening. We'll be back talking to you on Friday about Warcraft. It's happening. David has hinted at it a hundred times, so you know that it's going to be good. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior entertainment editor for Thrillist.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and we have a website, FightingInTheWarRoom.com, where you can listen to the episodes, you can share the episodes, you can leave your favorite nature documentaries or long comments about zoos. Everything's possible. Fightinginthewarm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a senior film critic for IndieWire, where you can find my very positive reviews on Warcraft and Now You See Me Too. I love movies. What a great time to be alive. <laughs> uh, you can also find all of us together singing the praises of these modern masterpieces on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA7E. That is my Twitter handle. I write for latino-review.com and geek.com. And this week, you should resubscribe or subscribe to the Republic City Dispatch podcast. It was about Nickelodeon's Legend of Korra, but Matt Patch is going to drop some Voltron goodness on you for you guys who like cartoons. That's tomorrow, guys. Tomorrow at the Republic City Dispatch feed. Wow. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find uh, me at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Twitter is also a great place to find all of us at F-I-T-W-R, talking to you, talking to each other, and talking about this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of The Conjuring 2, what's the one sequel coming out for the rest of the year that you actually do care about? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.